A homeless man is taken to the woods where he's hunted for sport. Join us as we talk about ripping off the Simpsons, how the purge helps the economy, and whether or not Al can beat up a dead guy. Then we find out if 1994's Surviving the Game stands the test of time. Time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello everyone and welcome to the Test of Time. I'm James Brief and joining me as always is Alan Noah, my buddy and pal and the director of this podcast. How are you doing, Al? Hi, that's me. I am doing very well. How are you doing, James? I'm doing very well. I would say I'm surviving the podcast. Oh, okay. I see what you did there. So this is our fourth and final listener request uh, that we're doing this November because sometimes there's just a backlog of listener requests. So then we just go through them. I guess November because we're thankful for our listeners. I think that was how it initially came to be. Whatever. It's just a good excuse to to watch movies that um, our listeners have requested. And this movie came from Tomek Gross. He's a co-worker of mine. He requested Tank Girl. And Tomek is good at a lot of things at work and in life. One thing he's very, very good at is pitching. When he told me about Tank Girl, he had me completely enraptured in his description of that movie. And I was like, I want to watch this movie right now because of the way he he talked about it. He also did something similar about this movie, Surviving the Game. I'm going to read to you some of the messages that Tomek sent me on Teams. You're a doctor. I'm guessing you don't use Teams or do you? Um, we once used Teams at the very beginning, like the first week of March 2020, when it was like, we're going to have a meeting. Everyone download something called Microsoft Teams. Got it. Yeah, I mean, whatever. Teams is fine. But this is what Tomek messaged me on Teams. Please review Surviving the Game at some point. My most watched movie. Real good, high quality, crappy movie. The movie I have seen the most times over and over. He said, honestly, it's my favorite movie. It's not the best movie, but it's my favorite. I can pretty much recite it to you line by line all the way through. Uh, He said that he rented it from Kim's video in 1994, took it to his friend Kyle's house who had the double VCR. Whoa, way to go, Kyle. That's pretty cool. Uh, And duped it onto a blank. I sampled the soundtrack later to make some weird music. Tomek is also a musician. So he really pitched this movie hard. And I was like, okay, I have never heard of surviving the game, but the hell with it. Tomek is really passionate about it. And, you know, I feel like that's relatable, right? Just having a random movie that you just are into and you just you you have the VHS. We're talking about the 90s before streaming and instant access to everything ever. You have what's in the pile of tapes and those are the movies that you love because they're there. 
If this film was released in the middle of 1994, uh, in April, April 15th, you know, you and I were 14 years old. There's a lot of Saturday and Friday nights that uh, you and I, we didn't go to parties. Maybe we're sneaking some HBO in. And, you know, the 8 o'clock movie might be the uh, release from uh, a year earlier. But, you know, once you start getting into, like... The 1 a.m., 2 a.m. films, that's when, like, the crappy action films, often starring uh, Gary Busey, uh, he's in a lot of these. And, you know, I used to kind of have a a guilty pleasure of just kind of watching these things because it's as you alluded to. It was pre-internet. Maybe you had America Online or Prodigy Network or something like that. I actually, I think on in April '94, I think I still had Prodigy Network. Okay. And um, you know, there's nothing to do. Yeah, you just kind of are watching TV and uh, yeah, you watch whatever's on. Or you could put in Star Wars: uh, The Empire Strikes Back uh, or Return of the Jedi and watch them for the 85th time. Right, because those were the movies you had on VHS, so you watched them. But let's talk about surviving the game. For anyone out there who hasn't seen it, it's about a homeless man named Mason who thinks he's been hired as a survival guide for a group of wealthy businessmen on a hunting trip. But in reality, the wealthy businessmen are killers who hunt humans for sport, and Mason is their new prey. To stay alive, Mason must outwit Burns. He's the ringleader of the organization. There's Cole, the man who recruited Mason for the game. Griffin, an oil man whose daughter was recently killed. Wall Street executive Derek Wolf and his son, Derek Wolf Jr., and Hawkins, a psychiatrist who works for the government. Who among this group will survive the game? Dun, dun, dun. You know, uh, this film, it's certainly reminiscent of something that is wildly popular now, uh, Squid Game. Yeah. Uh, that, that came out recently. And there have been elements of this in the past. Uh, probably one of the more famous ones uh, before Squid Game was uh, The Hunger Games. Yeah. Uh, that's another one of these, uh, the most dangerous game that we're hunting, man. Right. And I think it's a cool idea. Rich people having this sadistic game. You know, rich people play by different rules and they can hunt people down. They can play war. They can do all this crazy stuff like we're even learning. They can go down to the Titanic and unregulated submarines and one thing test of time this contest seemed to only cost fifty thousand dollars to uh to join i feel like today would be like at least 10 times that much five hundred thousand, if not a million (laughs) i like that that's what angers you like if i'm gonna go hunting humans for sport i couldn't get a deal for fifty thousand dollars no i mean i feel like these kind of games and and movies have the element that this is like the 1% of 1% of 1%. Like, we're just pawns in entertainment for them. You know, these shadowy people that are in uh, movies like Hostel and whoever runs the Hunger Games in District 1 and Taken, you know, these rich, evil, uh, the shadowy people that are doing these evil, sadistic things for millions of dollars. It's this perverse idea of what the billionaire class does. You know, just this idea that, yeah, yeah, they, they hunt us for sport. I could see them doing that. You know, there's something about that. Right. And and it's based off of this short story from 1924 called The Most Dangerous Game. So this idea of people hunting uh, humans, this goes back a century, basically. Uh, I'm not sure if the people in that 
short story were super rich. But I do think it is worth pointing out that in Squid Game and Hunger Games and these other types of things that you're using as examples, in those stories, the super rich people, they're watching poor people die, but they're not pulling the trigger. In surviving the game, the rich guys are actively hunting. They are the ones who want to kill the homeless people, which I think makes it a little bit different from from those other examples. It's a small difference, but it's notable for some reason. I don't know. Maybe it's not that important. Well, it's a little bit closer to uh, another kind of one percenter kind of film, uh, film series. That's The Purge. Okay. Have you ever seen those? The, the first no. film is, uh, you know, the premise of the film. Uh, yeah. It's one day when there could be crime. The first film is just kind of an enclosed film of, you know, just one family trying to you know, survive the purge. But the larger story in the later films is that the purge is an idea by the one percenters. You know, the one percenters can hide away in a fortress for the 24 hours but it's all the homeless people and the people on welfare and it's actually very economical for the government it makes a lot not it makes a lot of money for the government but it but saves money exactly so let, let's get rid of the trash okay and in this film they really really sell it that this isn't even a human we're selling we're, we're hunting we're hunting a homeless person and i wish they got a little more into some of the backstories Right, right, right. But you haven't yet told me how this movie did at the box office, James. And I want to know how Surviving the Game did at the box office. Although I think I have an idea that it didn't do great. But you tell me. Well, define not doing great. Pick a number between 1 and 100. Why don't you just pick 1 through 10? Uh, I'm going to say it made less than $10 million. It made $2.7 million. Wow. It's surprising, but not surprising because you know, Ice-T is a very certainly an established actor these days. He was in movies like New Jack City, and you know, he was starting to break in. Um, but uh, the, the cast themselves, while they have like Oscar-winning uh, actors now, you have F. Murray Abraham, yeah. and you have uh, John C. McGinley, who is always fantastic. Uh, Gary Busey, he's an Academy Award nominee. You have Charles S. Dutton. Charles S. Dutton's great. But I wouldn't say there's any 1994 box office draws that are major like, oh, we're going to see the new F. Murray Abraham action film. <laughs> right, right, right. F. Murray Abraham is kind of sort of having a moment now. Uh, I, I know I've mentioned The White Lotus before. He was on season two, which was amazing, and he was very good in it. I forget if I've asked you this. Did you watch Moon Knight on Disney Plus? No, that's the Marvel uh, series. Yes, it was a MCU show. It's really not connected to any of the other superheroes. It's fucking great. It's really, really good. And F. Murray Abraham is in that. I won't say how. Yeah, so so he's sort of had like this career resurgence or third act or whatever. He's an older guy, but uh, he's, he's still showing up on these uh, cool shows. So the main bad guy in this movie, played by Rutger Hauer, he plays a character named Burns, and they call him Mr. Burns. Now, this movie came out in 1994, so the Simpsons were around. They had been on the air for a few years, and Mr. Burns had been in a few episodes at this point. I guess... When they made this movie, they weren't really thinking that it would be a big deal, that maybe 
Mr. Burns is just some random guy on some random cartoon show that no one's going to care about in a year or two. Unlike the movie Surviving the Game, which will absolutely transcend the zeitgeist. And when people hear Mr. Burns, they will think of Rutger Hauer's character in Surviving the Game. And obviously no one expected The Simpsons to still be on the air in 2023, all these years later. But... It's just one of those names. You you can't have a movie and have a character, an evil character, an evil rich villain be named Mr. Burns because now everyone's just going to think, yeah, you just ripped off The Simpsons. <laughs> that's that's a great, great insight. And, uh, you know, Rucker Hauer, I was talking about the uh, the cast. Uh, I didn't mention Rucker Hauer. He's fun. He is a fun, kind of a chew-the-scenery kind of guy. Uh, we saw him in Blade Runner, okay. and uh, he had a fantastic role in that film. Um, you know, I can't quite tell what his role is. Like, what is his relationship to Charles S. Dutton? Do both of them run this together? My number one flaw with the film, and I thought I was going to learn it in the cave with uh, John C. McGinley, but I wanted to find out what's the deal with this game. Like, I want Wanted someone to tell us what it is. In Squid Game, yeah, they don't tell you until, like, you know, episode six. Then you start finding out what's going on in the background. And Hunger Games, ah, we'll find out more about with the why these uh, tributes happen. But we never get that. And nor does this film set up a sequel that, ah, in the sequel we'll find out. This game is bigger than you thought. It's international. Uh, yeah, what's going on here? I agree with you that they don't really explain it. I think Mr. Burns is the ringleader. Maybe Gary Busey, like, initially set it up, but now Burns is in charge. They don't really make a lot of it clear. And I think that it is a missed opportunity because there is some degree of understanding who these characters are and why they are hunting people. We get this story from Gary Busey where he talks about when he was a kid, his dad made him kill a dog. And it's this really intense, crazy story delivered by Gary Busey with his crazy eyes. And it's great. And apparently it was all kind of like ad-libbed or kind of written the night before. And it doesn't make perfect logical sense in an A to B to C way where his dad made him kill a dog that he loved when he was a kid and so now he kills people as an adult. There's a little bit of, you know, middle ground in there that's missing, but fine, whatever. John C. McKinley says that his daughter was killed by a homeless man, so okay, that means he goes and kills other homeless people for sport. It's a little weak, but fine, it's good enough. You know, John C. McGinley is a fantastic actor. And oh, yeah. I, I pretty much love anything he's in. There is a lot of sympathy to his character. Like, if it was made today, pretty much what they would have done is they would have taken one of these destroyed dads whose beautiful 14-year-old daughter was killed in a school shooting. They tell him, look... We have a shooter. He, he's a shooter in uh, Siberia. Like he shot up a school of eight people, so we're going to hunt him. This guy will be like, 
I need to get revenge. And maybe, you know, like John's, uh, like McGinley, he learns, like, maybe killing is not what I want to do. And maybe, oh, oh, I learned this guy isn't a murderer, so I don't want to kill a regular guy. Right. But I understand why this guy would be there because he's completely messed up. I'm not saying I would do it. I understand why he's there. That's what makes the best villains, you know. And I, I like that they do it for this guy. Gary Busey It's also helped by the fact that he's Gary Busey and he's fucking insane. 100%. So, you know, that that sells it. I don't quite get why the father and son are there because this seems exactly like the son who doesn't want to go hunting and kill an innocent beautiful deer right. and it's like come on we're going to make a man out of you and you'd have the exact same cliche things there but why does it have to be hunting a human you know I could have understood like maybe the dad was going to tell us like where he grew up like you have to learn as horrible as it is like I want you to kill someone who's a scum of the earth anyway son because he calls the homeless guy like a scum um, I, I thought there was going to be some rich guy reason why he has to learn how to kill, but they don't give that. Right. There are no motivations for any other characters other than Busey and McGinley. The thing I was expecting for the Wall Street guy was a one-liner where he was going to say something like, man, that thrill of buying low and selling high, there's nothing like that rush. But after a while, it wears off. Now I have to kill which would have been lame, but at least it would have been something. We don't even get that. We get nothing for birds. We don't know what, what his deal is, why he likes killing. I think the biggest missed opportunity, or maybe second biggest, uh, is Cole, the guy who works with these homeless people. Should I say unhoused? You know what I mean. He works with these people. He volunteers his time. And is it purely 100% a front and the only reason he volunteers at these shelters and in these food banks is to recruit people for this game or is it that maybe he's a little bit more complicated and sometimes he hunts and kills people for sport but other times the people who are good and and poor and homeless yeah he he really does want to make a difference and help them i don't know because the movie doesn't tell me and that's fertile ground, man. Like, you could tell a really interesting story about this guy, right? Well, I absolutely agree. Uh, I think the answer is explained, weirdly, in a different film. Okay. Uh, I think that uh, um, Jordan Peele answers that in his film Get Out. Okay. And without doing any spoilers, that film definitely relies on the fact that if someone from, like, a poorer area, they don't quite go homeless, but uh, in that film, they're basically saying that, you know, society's not really going to miss a homeless guy or some random uh, guy in the street. And I think that's what this film is trying to go for, but doesn't quite say. I think the perfect cover is this soup kitchen. And you could tell earlier in the film, they're monitoring these guys and they're looking for candidates and they actually get iced tea to, to run a treadmill. And uh, there's probably other candidates that they just don't go with. Because uh, Charles S. Sutton's character, he says something along the lines of, I told you he would work out, uh, implying there was some debate, meaning there must have been other candidates that they could have been going for. Right. Um, Mason, uh, played by Ice-T, he also doesn't really have a backstory, which I think would have helped because we see that these guys have killed many, many, many people before. There's a, a trophy room in the cabin with heads, lots and lots and lots of heads. Mason 
defeats these guys. Spoiler alert for the end. You know, he survives the game and, and everyone else dies. Why? What makes him so special? Was he military? Did he have some background where he was in special forces? You know, he was trained by some government and some special ops or something? Oh, I mean, his friend who is like his mentor, he has a military background and he dies early in the movie. Did he pass along all of his wisdom from his military training days so that even Mason, who is working as a superintendent, he knows all of these things? Oh, I'm rooting for Mason. I want Mason to survive the game. But how does he do it when no one else could? They could have explained that or even tried to a little. I thought of that same thing, and to the filmmaker's credit, Mason does not do anything that Arnold Schwarzenegger does in Predator. Arnold Schwarzenegger's character has all of these skills, and he makes all these booby traps in the middle of the South American or Central American jungle, and Mason does none of those things. His um, traps are really not that good. They're kind of stupid. I'm surprised some of them work. And the other things he does is when he sees the cabin, which is kind of a stupid thing to do, actually. I think him going back to the cabin was pretty dumb. Really? Um, I thought that was genius. I thought it was stupid because uh, I thought there should have been someone waiting for him. I, I thought that was incredibly stupid that there was no one there because, yeah, they just release him and he could come back and get some knives, get any kind of weapons. A, he doesn't get any of these knives. That, that That's kind of stupid. But when he gets to the cabin, he just, you know, throws gasoline. You don't have to be like that smart to realize uh, that you should do that. Well, and, that that is stupid. Burning the cabin down, I thought was stupid. Going back to the cabin is smart. One, to go for weapons. Two, to go for transport. Like, they fly in on a private helicopter, and that helicopter isn't there at the cabin, but there's got to be a car, a bike, a motorcycle, an ATV, or a phone to call the helicopter to come back. That's what I thought he was going to do. I thought going back to the cabin was really, really smart. Burning it down, I thought was really fucking stupid, though, because there's a lot of evidence here of these guys and their murderous past. Maybe keep that around? That could come in handy at some point? Eh, you're not going to completely erase 75 heads that were in jars. I mean, these things don't get vaporized. Anyone who's trying to look there is going to find some horrific uh, things with it, if they care to look. Oh, yeah, dental records and all that. That's fair. I also did think that in that scene, the one or maybe two characters who were going to die was F. Murray Abraham and his son, the Wall Street guys. The dad is trapped in the fire, and then the son rescues him. And it's Busey who dies in that scene. He's the first one of the hunters who is killed off and fine, whatever. But also it's like, why did you kill off Busey first? He's a more established name. No offense, F. Murray Abraham, but I want to see Busey. I want to see Busey going nuts and going after Mason. And he's the first one to die. I kind of was wondering if it was like a budget thing and they only could afford Busey for a few days of shooting and that was why he was the first one to go. I read today that the director or writer or someone had said, oh, we should have kept Busey around longer and not had him be the first one die. It's like, well, yeah, no shit. <laughs> like, why would you kill that guy first? 
Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Busey is usually like a head bad guy, lethal weapon, right? Uh, under siege. I think he's a little bit better than uh, Rucker Hauer in that regard. I, oh, I yeah. like Rucker Hauer here. I think he's kind of a he's he's well cast as a scumbag, but I prefer Rucker Hauer as maybe being the security enforcer guy, kind of the Charles S. Dutton character, right? And I like that the head of this is a either a total psychopath or more of like the sociopath actually very brilliant you know the man with the suit who uh you know is eating caviar while everyone hunts like but that's not Rucker Hauer either right so I, I think I would have preferred yeah I think I would have preferred uh Gary Busey to be the bad guy at the end right definitely and, yeah and I also that was probably the one death I, I appreciated most of the deaths in the film as kind of we're within the capabilities of Mason but I thought it was a little silly that Gary Busey's character decides to fight hand-to-hand or like, you know, uh, just no guns or anything. I get the sport, like when people want to like, I'm not going to use guns, I'm only going to fight bow and arrow. But I also don't think if you hunt bow and arrow against deer, there's a real good chance a deer is going to kill you. Right. You know, I, I've always thought this is stupid yes. when they when, uh, when bad guys do this. I do agree. I mean, are you giving the deer a bow and arrow too? No, but I hear what you're saying and I can't argue with any of it. I think it only works because it's Busey and Busey saying, no weapons, let's just fight hand to hand. Okay, this guy is insane. And so I could picture him doing that shrug. Right, it's literally the end of uh, Lethal Weapon. Yes. Uh, we're going to review that film at some point, but basically there's Mel Gibson versus Gary Busey, and, and I think Gary Busey says something so crazy like, all right, you want a shot at the championship or a shot at the title? And they just, with cops surrounding him, have a fist fight. You know, the other deaths in the film, uh, such as John C. McGinley's death, when Mason captures him and they talk at night, he learns, like, oh, he's not a killer. But more importantly he wakes up in the morning alive. Right. And when he's like, well, this guy could have killed me. I, I can't murder this guy. They shoot him. Yeah. And unless they're killing everyone that comes to this place, Jazzy McGinley is as culpable. You know, he, it's conspiracy to commit murder. He's yeah. as culpable as everyone else, even if he doesn't pull the trigger. I didn't feel like he was going to say anything. To me, them killing him is just kind of by the numbers because Mason isn't going to do it. He's not going to kill him in cold blood, but he has to die because that's what this movie is. It's going to be a, a one man left standing situation and it's going to be Mason. So the other bad guys are going to kill him. You're right. The The reason, the rationale for killing him is pretty fucking flimsy just because he decides that he doesn't want to murder anymore. Then he's a liability to talk to the cops. Maybe he could get some kind of plea deal, but also why would he bother? He's not going to bother going after these guys. He's just going to go back to living his life. Right. And I think it would have made perfect sense if he had an extreme reaction to seeing Mason's humanity. All he had to do was actually say something along the lines of, 
I'm going to go to the police. Uh, you know, th- this is murder, guys. This is not hunting. This is murder. Right. And then they're going to go, oh, well, well we're going to kill you now. That would have made more sense. I agree. You know, uh, the next death, uh, the, de- the death of the kid, earlier in the film, they allude to the fact that he's the moral compass of this group. He says, there's no way I'm going to hunt. Um, there's one part when when Mason uh, escapes from the burning cabin. The young kid, he sees which direction he goes. And the other guys know that he saw, but he won't tell them where he goes. But there really is no resolution with it. And in a strange turn for this kid, he tells his dad, I'm really mad at you for taking me on this thing. Now, I'll even hunt Mason, but we're really going to have a talk after this. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Did you say you're now participating? But like, I was like, all right, there goes that kid's uh, moral compass there. It's like the equivalent of a sternly worded letter like okay this is doing absolutely nothing i think that line is in there so that when he dies you don't feel bad but i don't think he had to die even though i literally just said that you know this is a last man standing kind of a movie and that was pretty clear from the title and the whole vibe of it I do think they could have made an exception for the kid because Mason knows that this kid is a kid and he isn't like the others. And you could see Mason just letting him go. And maybe you don't even know what happens to him. He runs off into the woods and does he find his way back to civilization? Eh, We don't find out in the movie. That's up for you, the audience member, to decide. Blah, blah, blah. But the fact that he dies... It's kind of shitty for Mason because Mason basically kills him, not directly, but with this trap he lays where uh, they have to crawl across a tree to get across a ravine and then he slips. Well, Mason did make that trap. I also thought that that was kind of a weirdly constructed trap because I thought what uh, Mason was going to do was wait till they were crawling along the tree and then kind of sneak out where he was right there. Maybe he was on the the first side, he didn't even cross over on the thing himself, and then he just knocks the tree down into the ravine. That probably would have been a little too convenient for the movie because then he would have killed all three remaining guys, and that's the end of it. But I thought that would have been a little bit more clever. That that would have been pretty cool. Obviously, it could have killed one of them, and one or two of them, you know, jumped to safety or something. Sure. Um, I thought that the kid dying was quite shocking. Um, yeah. I would have been fine with having the kid, you know, his character arc goes from moral compass to being sadistic at the end. And then, okay, cool. You know, he deserves to die. Um, when the kid was uh, falling, I was for a moment thinking, oh, God, don't have Mason come out and save him. Like, that's stupid. Like, you can't do that, Mason. He might have wanted to save him, but he was not stupid enough to go out and save him. Right. The dad, F. Murray Abraham... I didn't quite understand how he died. Did he die in an Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, neck snap kind of murder? I think so. I'm not totally sure. That hand-to-hand combat is kind of laughable because even though this is F. Murray Abraham years before he's the old guy on the White Lotus, he's still an older gentleman and it just doesn't look like he could hold his own in a fight against Ice-T in 1994. Again, apologies to F. Murray Abraham, but Ice-T would kick your fucking ass. Definitely today still, and definitely in 1994. I mean, I think you could have made it easy that F. Murray Abraham could 
put up a fight, have him have a weapon, some kind of club. The gun doesn't work. Okay, beat him with it. Maybe he got a shot, you know, it skims his shin. So, you know, he's at uh, 80%. So it's kind of a more fair fight. But I did think it was a little odd having them just go toe-to-toe. Rutger Hauer, you know, the two of them, Rutger Hauer is a a big guy. I kind of understand. I would not want to go toe-to-toe with Rutger Hauer. But um, I think I could take him. I don't think you can. Um, (laughs) Well, there's only one way to find out. Rutger Hauer, if you're listening, you've been challenged. I think he's dead. Is he dead? Look it up. He died in uh, 2019 at the age of 75. Oh, well, then I could definitely take him in a fight. Today or even at age 75? Or what are you talking about? No, today. He's been dead for four years. I can definitely take a dead guy in a fight. Um, I, I do think it's worth pointing out, though, that right while Mason is fighting uh, F. Murray Abraham, it is like pitch black night. And then he starts going after Burns, Rutger Hauer, and it is instantly noon. The sun is not coming out. It goes from pitch black 2 a.m. to 2 p.m. in a matter of seconds. And it was like, okay, they were trying to say that, you know, the night part was over. But like, come on, you could you could have lit that scene better. You could have shot that scene earlier in the morning. It was laughable how quickly it went from night to day. Um, I did remember that, but I just kind of assumed that this all happened at like, you know, 4.30 a.m. I kind of did assume for the sake of movies that it did happen in about 20 minutes. So which it can turn pretty uh, bright pretty quickly, I guess. I guess, I guess. And so Mason follows Burns and he follows him to the helicopter and Burns blows up the helicopter, seemingly killing Mason. Not really, of course. But then at that point, Burns says something like, forgive me, father, for what I'm about to do. And then he blows up the helicopter. And then in the next scene, when they meet again in downtown Seattle, I think it's supposed to be, Burns is quoting the Bible and he's dressed up as a father and he's got these rosary beads and he's like praying all of a sudden. Did I miss anything? Was there any kind of religious stuff, imagery, subtext earlier in the movie or did they just shoehorn all of that at the very end of Act 3? No, I just assumed it was some kind of disguise. That and that's all it was. Well, it was a disguise. Yes, and that was part of like his shtick. But the forgive me father line, that's before he puts on that disguise. And it just seems like, okay, you could make a point about religion in this movie at some point. Maybe uh, the homeless shelter was connected to a church or something. That through line wasn't there in the movie. If this movie was going to be a commentary on religion or spirituality or something, you could do that. You could make that work. But it didn't. And it was just kind of like tacked on at the very, very end. And it's like, that's stupid. That's pointless. If you're, if you're going to just tack that on, don't bother, you know? I agree. Um, the way that Mason kills Burns is kind of full circle because it's a lesson that he says earlier in the movie. It, it's a callback to if you find a gun, you always check the chamber. And Burns doesn't do that. And so he tries to shoot Mason in the back. But then... The gun explodes on him, and it's, uh, you know, a full circle moment. Okay, I get it. I actually really like that death. I thought that was a, a cool death. Uh, it was a good, cool callback, because also, it's a kind of a cool way to kill a bad guy. I think, you know, you, 
you fuck with the gun a little bit, that thing's going to blow up in your face. I, I thought it was kind of clever, and it was someone with the hubris. There were two deaths in this film that were, I wouldn't say stupid deaths. I, I would say that they were done because of hubris. Um, Rucker Howard's death at the end, you're picking up a gun. Like he said, that's the first rule. Make sure it's clear. He did not do that. And Charles S. Dutton's character, his gas tank was open and kind of the fuel line was fueled. Like It was a little obvious, but I could see someone missing it in the excitement of chasing someone. And his uh, his motorcycle blew up and it was hubris. Like, check safety, dude. Check the mirrors. <laughs> right, right. I guess if you're hunting humans for sport, maybe you just lose some of that, that safety stuff. I didn't see any of those guys put on sunscreen before they went out on that hunt. Were they staying hydrated? Did they pack some trail mix so that they wouldn't uh, lose steam? You know, th- these are things you got to think about. That is all true. Um, what do you think, Al? Does this movie stand the test of time? No, not even a little bit. I guess maybe you could make the argument that the idea of hunting people is still a thing. And, you know, Squid Game, I think Squid Game's different enough. But I think this movie is trying to make a profound statement about the value or lack thereof that we put on certain lives. And these rich guys don't consider homeless people to be lives worth anything. And Mason and McGinley, their children died and they took their children's lives for granted. And there's something in there, but the movie blows it. It does not stick the landing as to what it is saying, the point that it is making. There's not really any coherence to this game and who these characters are and why Mason is able to survive. I think that there's some interesting ideas here, but the execution is pretty terrible and it's a shame because Tomek uh, really wanted me to watch this movie. He did say that it was a shitty movie, so I don't feel too guilty, but no, I do not think it stands the test of time. What do you think, James? You know, I kind of have a, a soft spot for where Tom is coming from with this film. He understands it's not a great film. I mean, this is not well-made cinema, but that is not the question of what this podcast is. This question is, does this film stand the test of time? Mm-hmm. Is this a film you could watch today? You know, strangely, for all of its flaws, I was entertained by this film. I I pretty much agree with everything you said. I'm not going to say I really like this film. You know, there's generic 2 a.m. kind of film, except you throw in a dash of iced tea who's in full iced tea mode the entire film. Um, he's street smart and he he talks uh, you know tough. It's got a little dash of Gary Busey in there, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rucker Hauer is, uh, I think he's fun. Uh, John C. McGinley is, I think he's always great. And you know, you just have that dash of also a little bit of editing that was good in this film. It's 90 minutes. This yeah. film was really quick it's in it's out i would almost say it probably could have cut out even more of the initial uh scenes of uh ice tea and civilization because while it would have been good to establish his character it doesn't really do that so yeah. i probably would have uh you know skipped all the parts where he goes to a motel and they're like who'd you rob to get 20 bucks and all that stuff could have been skipped and it could have been 80 minutes 
But weirdly, I'm going to say this film stands up, okay. uh, stands the test of time. Um, it's not a great film, but this would be a film that I would watch on an airplane. It's not great. It's not good. I might have gotten a chuckle here and there or a little smile at some of this stuff. I like Ice-T and I like the, some of these minor characters. So for me, it just barely stands the test of time. Again, bad movie. But if you know what you're getting into, stands the test of time. Fair. Kind of neither here nor there. I've never watched a episode of Law & Order SVU. Have you? Sure, yeah. Um, I, I used to date someone who was the cliche of she wanted to watch every murder show. Okay. And, you know, she loved serial killers and murder shows and, you know, all, all that stuff. So definitely SVU was, uh, you know, if she was, like, in a bad mood, I could even, like, I'd be like, let me put on SVU. And something horrible happens to someone. But, yeah, it's it's what people like to watch. Okay. Have you heard John Mulaney's bit about Ice-T on SVU? Yes. And it is definitely true in certain aspects he's not like that in every episode but sometimes he is the character like in star trek that's there so that someone else can explain to the audience what's really happening it should be another character not ice t who's been in the svu for 20 years now it's it's kind of accurate okay right and for anyone who doesn't know the bit is basically that mulaney says that in every single episode despite the fact that ice t's character has worked there for so many years he's constantly shocked about what he sees and is like are you telling me that this guy gets off on girls wearing pigtails? Yeah, you, you work in the special crimes unit. This really shouldn't shock you. Um, but every episode, he's like, wait a second. Are you telling me this guy is sexually attracted to feet? And he's just constantly surprised. I, I mean, I have no basis for knowing if it's accurate, but it makes me laugh because I think John Mulaney is funny. Um, just watching Ice-T made me think of that bit. Um, I, I like Ice-T. I like Ice-T as an actor. I'm looking forward to doing New Jack City. Sure. Uh, yeah, that, that's a film I haven't seen in years. It's got an early Chris Rock. It's got uh, Wesley Snipes. Yeah. yeah I don't it, think I've ever seen it. I think also um, Judd Nelson's in it, too. Oh, okay. Um, also, by the way, um, I don't know if uh, Tomek did this on purpose, but Ice-T is also in Tank Girl. He's one of the uh, the kangaroo people, uh, less recognizable because he's a kangaroo person. Uh, I don't know, Tomek. Are you a huge Ice T fan? Is that is that the uh, the connection? You can tell me on Teams tomorrow. But that's going to do it for us this week. It's also going to do it for our month of listener requests. Thank you to everyone who requested a movie this November. Keep those requests coming. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, X, Instagram, Threads. You can send us an email, thetestoftimepodcast at gmail.com. Ask us to do a movie. Maybe we'll make you wait till next November. Maybe not. We'll see. But next week, we're going to be talking about a movie called Big Fish. It's celebrating its 20th anniversary. Did you ever see Big Fish, James? No, but I remember the ska band, Real Big Fish. Right. This is their story. It, it's not, actually. Sorry. That is, a, that is a lie. It has nothing to do with Real Big Fish. It's directed by Tim Burton. It's an interesting movie. I saw that it was having its 20th anniversary, and I was excited to re-watch this movie because I don't think I've seen it since it first came out. Uh, but until then, guys, we do want to hear from you. Write to us. Let us know what you think about hunting humans for sport. I don't, I don't know what kind of hot takes there are about that. 
but write into us and talk to us. We love hearing from you, and uh, we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.